So we are uh, going to enter into a, uh, our message this morning and pray for God's Spirit to be present in this time. And, I'm, and if you're wanting God to speak to you this morning to be present, I'm going to invite you to join me in praying this together. God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to be looking in Second Kings chapter 6. And uh, sometimes I have you stand. I'm going to have you remain seated this morning for this story in Second Kings chapter 6, starting at verse 8. This is God's word. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? One of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army of horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men, that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and, they, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not again come on raids into the land of Israel. Israel here is at war with Syria. I want to show you a map, give you an idea of the relationship of Israel to Syria at this time. You'll notice 
Uh, Syria also referred to as Aram, and some of your translations, that might be how Syria is referred. We're told that the king of Syria was frustrated because his military plans were being thwarted by the prophet Elisha. Every time the king attempted an attack, Elisha had already warned the king of Israel. And so this had happened more than once. So the king of of Syria decided to take a different approach. Instead of trying to attack the king of Israel and his army, take out the prophet. Send his army in on a reconnaissance mission to kill the prophet Elijah. And we're told in verse 15 that when Elisha's servant got up early in the morning, he was terrified to see horses and chariots surrounding the city. And so he, he asked Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha calmly responds, do, Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, I would love to have been there to see the look on Elisha's servant's face. He must have thought Elijah was crazy. There was only two of them standing there looking around, and they see a whole army of Syrian horses and chariots. See, the servant was seeing reality with his eyes, and his eyes were telling them they're in serious trouble. But Elisha saw something different. Elisha saw reality in a way that his servant could not. And here we have a collision of two kinds of worldviews. Views of reality. Two people looking at their circumstances and seeing it from totally different perspectives. It was their worldview that shaped their reaction and response to their circumstances in a totally different way. Elisha's servant was fearful and anxious. Elisha the prophet was calm and confident. The difference was their view of reality. Both of them responded to what their eyes could see. It's just that their eyes could see very differently. And Elisha's servant here only could see the physical, material environment dimensions of reality around him. And that's what people today might refer to a naturalistic or materialistic view of reality. Naturalism is a worldview that believes everything arises from physical properties and causes. All of reality is material objects produced by material forces. So, for example, a a materialistic perspective would argue that human beings, each of us, we don't have a soul or a mind or a consciousness. Our consciousness is an immaterial concept, and therefore it's really only an illusion because the mind is simply the product of our neurons and chemicals in our brain. It's funny that Dara would mention that in the announcement. I didn't know that she was going to mention that. Uh, But from a materialistic perspective, the very good chemicals in our brain, the very good product of relationships, for, for those from a materialistic perspective, that's really the only benefit from those relationships, is the chemical release into your system. Marvin Minsky, he was a cognitive scientist from MIT, he referred to the human brain as nothing but a three-pound computer made of meat. 
Now, that's a consistent and coherent understanding of the brain if your world is limited to material objects and forces. Compare that with Elisha's worldview. He has a different understanding of reality because he sees dimensions of reality that is hidden from his servant. We call Elisha's worldview a supernatural view of reality and defined this way, of or relating to an order of existence beyond the visible, observable universe. Now, some authors and scientists will argue, like Richard Dawkins, that science has rendered belief in the supernatural is irrational. They'll say that religious faith is what blind faith because you can't prove it in a laboratory. You can't measure it. You can't smell it. You can't observe it. You can't poke it. And therefore, the supernatural doesn't exist. And this is where the two worldviews collide. Bertrand Russell, the British philosopher from the 20th century, said, What science cannot tell us, mankind cannot know. Of course, if you think about that statement, is that a statement from science? It is not. Therefore, we cannot know it. See, it refutes itself. John Lennox is a professor of mathematics at Oxford University. He was invited to speak at Harvard University. He is a Christian mathematician, scientist, you could say, addressing whether or not belief in in the supernatural is irrational. Lennox was confronting the naturalist assumption that all reality is found in nature, in the material world, in what you can see and touch and smell. The assumption being that a supernatural worldview is based on blind faith and therefore not credible. Well, Lennox argued that both the naturalist and supernaturalist worldview comes out of a faith assumption. That it's not that one is blind faith and the other is not. That they both come from a perspective of reality where there is a basic trust. Lennox shared a story from a debate he had with Peter Singer, an Australian moral philosopher. And Singer stated that his chief objection to religious belief is that people believe the faith in which they were brought up. And so Lennox asked Peter if his parents were atheists. And Singer said yes. And Lennox concluded, well, you remained in the faith you were brought up in. But of course, Singer disagreed. He said, but atheism isn't a faith. And Lennox said, I'm sorry, I misunderstood. I thought that you said you believed it. You see, Lennox was simply trying to show that both worldviews require faith. The atheists and the theists both have that starting point. And Lennox argues that it's not the job of science to determine whether the supernatural exists or not. That stretches beyond the job description of the scientist. But he would argue that the very discipline of science that assumes that there are laws in the universe, laws that we can measure and laws that we can trust, that that, from that you would naturally infer a lawmaker. To go back to our discussion about the human brain, Lennox concludes that according to atheism, the mind that does science is the end product of a mindless, unguided process. 
Now, if you knew your computer was the product of a mindless, unguided process, you wouldn't trust it. So to me, atheism undermines the rationality I need to do science. Now, why am I spending so much time discussing worldviews? Well, in our culture, we have a growing suspicion of all things supernatural. In fact, you can read many articles that try to scientifically explain why human beings of all cultures all over the world seem to have supernatural perspectives on reality. Scientists... uh, philosophers, others who are trying to argue from a naturalistic perspective, well, there must be some explanation for this that we can determine. Trying to understand why people believe crazy things like ghosts and angels and heaven and hell. And here we are reading a story about a man who sees an army of horses and chariots of fire. Now, if one of your trusted friends came to you claiming to have seen such a thing, would you not be skeptical? I mean, wouldn't your first response be, what did you eat last night? (laughs) Are you okay? There's got to be some rational explanation, right? As educated Western Christians thinking, living in the 21st century, we live in this tension, I think. You know, my guess is in this very room, None of you hold a purely naturalistic perspective or materialistic perspective. I mean, you are attending a church service, so you must at least be open to the idea that there could be a supernatural reality. My guess is you want to believe that such an army of horses and chariots of fire could really exist. My guess is that you want to believe That in this room, angels have surrounded us and are protecting us. It's my guess that deep down inside, you want that. And yet at the same time, there is a part of you that questions. There's a part of you that thinks, well, maybe it is all myths and fairy tales. We live in conflict. We're straddling two worldviews today as Christians. We know we're supposed to believe in the supernatural, but we don't see the horses and we don't see the chariots. And we live in a culture that's constantly telling us we're nuts. And yet as human beings, there seems to be something within us where it's very natural to believe in the supernatural. Rankin Wilburn, a pastor from Los Angeles at our mother church, Pacific Crossroads Church, the church that we gave birth to this church out of, he talks about how it's, kind of, it's, a, it's odd that you know, the scientific and technological advances in our society are trying to eradicate our sense of the supernatural. But if you look at the number of movies and television shows today that contain supernatural or spiritual themes... He says this, no sooner does one area of our culture try to convince us nothing exists beyond the visible world than another stream rushes in to fill the void. It seems that if we take mystery and enchantment out of our intellectual diet, we become starved for it. Could it be that our particular moment's obsession with vampires and zombies is in fact an indicator of our hunger for enchantment? These conflicts that we experience, you know, it's not just two people from two very different worldviews, like Elisha's servant and Elisha, the materialist and the supernaturalist. It's the reality that they exist within 
one human heart. All of us, we, we experience the tension of the two worldviews within our very hearts. We want to embrace that supernatural view of reality. We want to experience that supernatural view of reality. And yet, in our day-to-day routine, in our very lives, it could be argued that we aren't living that out. I mean, how many days go by for you where you don't even pray one time? You don't even think for a moment to address God because you're so busy. And you're so wrapped up in your own little world. How many of you go day to day living with extreme anxiety and and fear? Because it seems like your world is crumbling in on you. You look at the world around us and we think, my goodness, what's going to happen? And and you, you have no confidence. You have no security. You have no sense that God is in control of things. What about those of you who experience great loneliness? You feel like there is no one who cares about me. You have no sense of the reality that there is a loving God who who has expressly placed his care and, and concern on you. Or perhaps those of us who spend all our time on physical pursuits and comforts, all our resources, all our energy to get the next car, the nice house, all the things that we invest ourselves in. Can we say that we believe in a supernatural reality when this is our day-to-day experience? That we aren't living out of the reality that Elisha saw. You see, I think if we were to see our circumstances from that supernatural reality, it would very much change our day-to-day living. The Anglican writer Harry Lemaire's, in his book on Christian truth, argues that the unbeliever's world is so much smaller than the Christian's view of reality because the unbeliever has limited reality to a decaying universe. He gives this illustration of a child at a theater. He says, watching a tragedy like Hamlet at the end where, where you have a stage littered with corpses... Now, suppose you had a difficulty comforting the child after the play is over because the child is so distressed seeing all these people killed off. The child thinks all these people are dead and you're sitting with them saying, no, the man who played Hamlet is not really dead. He's, he's backstage now. He's probably with his friends and family. They're probably eating and laughing and enjoying themselves. And he says this, If there is one word the Christian secretly wants to use to describe the unbeliever's outlook, it is literal, like the child who takes the play for reality. You see, he's arguing that a a materialistic view of reality is like that child. All you see is what's on stage and you think that's it. And unfortunately, I think it's true for many of us who profess to follow Christ. And our lives are evidence. In order to show how our brains can be blind to the reality of of the supernatural, some researchers, researchers performed a study. They put a clown on a unicycle. And they had this clown in the path of pedestrians. And the researchers asked people who had walked by the clown if they had noticed anything unusual. 
And they found that everyone, everybody saw the clown unless they had been on their cell phone. It said three out of every four people who had been using their phone did not see the clown. And they looked back in astonishment, unable to believe they had missed him. And they looked straight at him, but not registered his presence. The unicycling clown had passed, crossed their path, but not their mind. And how often does Jesus show up crossing our paths, but not our minds? Perhaps God, even this morning, in some way has revealed himself to you, showing up right in front of you, but you were not at a place to see him. You were not in a state, in a condition to recognize him. Elisha responded so calmly to his circumstances, being surrounded by the Syrian army, he saw this spiritual reality that was hidden to most people. And this type of a vision is not something that can be taught. It's not something that can be learned. What's obvious from this story, it is a gift. It is a gift that God gives us. And if you long to have this type of spiritual sight, this vision to see your circumstances from a different reality. You have to ask for it. That's the first step. Elisha's servant doesn't see what Elisha sees because he's blind to it. And so Elisha does the very reasonable thing, the rational thing. He asks God for it. He says, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now at this point, you might be asking, so when we ask for that spiritual sight, are we asking to see angels around every corner? Are we asking to see demons and devils? In the closet? Is that the kind of spiritual sight that, that we're asking for here? Is that what the story is showing us? Well, I think this story, like many stories in the Bible, is a unique story. It's, it's intended to be unique. Prophet, uh, the Elisha was an unusual prophet. And so when we pray for God to give us sight, to give us spiritual vision... We're not so much asking for God to show us his angels, to show us those, phys- those uh, spiritual realities in that sense. I think we're, we are intended to ask for eyes of faith. Eyes of faith that begin to see God working and acting in our circumstances in ways that we didn't see before. Eyes that learn to trust him, to trust his providence and trust that his goodness is being revealed to us, even in the very difficult circumstances that we see. And I think we see that in the story of Doubting Thomas, if you're familiar with John's gospel. Thomas was the one disciple who, when Jesus was raised from the dead, Thomas didn't want to believe. Thomas is the one that said, I'm not going to believe until I feel him and, and, and hold him and touch him. 
And Jesus comes to Thomas and Jesus says to him, Here, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Hold me. Eat with me. I'm real. Believe. And Thomas does. Now, if the story ended there, I would be very discouraged. Because I'm sitting here as a 21st century Christian going, well, wait a minute, that's not fair. Because I want to believe like that. I want to see Jesus. I want to hold him. I want that kind of faith. Faith that comes from actually seeing him. But of course, Jesus in the next verse confronts that expectation on my part by saying, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In other words, those who have believed with their hearts, those who have believed with spiritual eyes and trusted his word to us, You see, in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is about to leave his disciples in chapter 28, this is incredible when you think about it. Jesus says to them, I am with you always. That's how it ends. And after that, Jesus is ascended to the Father. In other words, Jesus says, I'm with you always, and then he disappears. He disappears from their sight right there. Here we are face to face with one of the central difficulties of faith, the central difficulties of a spiritual view of reality. God tells us he's with us, but we can't see him, we can't touch him, we can't talk to him in the way that we're accustomed to talking to everyone else. So this is where faith and that tension really begins to to bear on our hearts in the realities of our day-to-day life. And you look at our country and you think everything is falling apart. You look at your, your finances and you see, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. You, you receive a diagnosis from a physician and you think there is no hope. You look at all your circumstances and you can choose in that moment, are you going to see your circumstances just purely with your eyes or is there another set of eyes by which you can see? By which you can see your God walking with you, protecting you, caring for you. And will you ask him for that vision and sight? You see, I think Dallas Willard's little illustration here, philosopher, uh, says it well. He, he wrote about a, a tiny child who crept into his father's bedroom one night to sleep, and it was dark. The lights were out, and the little child couldn't see his father, and he crawled in bed with him, knowing his father was there. That was enough. And the child said to his father there in the dark, he said, Father, Daddy, is your face turned toward me? And the father said, Yes, my face is turned toward you. And that's all the child needed. And he went to sleep. And I think that illustrates well the challenge of faith and the challenge that each and one of us have as believers in the supernatural and the believers of the reality that God is with us. We have a battle of faith to trust not with our eyes, 
but with the spiritual eyes, through the lens of faith, trusting the one who whispers to us, I am with you always. And he is. He is. Do you believe it? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we want to pray for those spiritual eyes this morning. Because I know there are many in this room who are experiencing great trials. That they are drowning, Lord, in difficult situations. And Lord, they are crying out for eyes that could see your presence, your power showing up. Maybe not like Elisha, but Lord, in a way that really does transform our hearts and and give us a comfort and a calm. To allow us to walk in our day-to-day routines in a way that stands out, that is different, Lord, in a way that reveals your trust in us, your, your care for us. I ask that, Lord Jesus, as this morning, as we spend a few moments just praying, that those here this morning that long for that vision of the spiritual realities, would you answer their prayer? Would you give them that sight? Those who truly are longing to see you, Lord, show, show yourself. Bring us the comfort that Elisha's servant experienced that day so that we might be your people and live with boldness and courage no matter what we face and confront. Amen.